That's too big to solve Stop looking to man And start looking to God Cause I know for certain You see there's not a thing You can't do but there's not a mountain that my God cannot move. I've not seen a mountain that God cannot move. No, I've not seen a problem He won't carry you through So just call on the master And watch what he'll do for you Cause I've not seen a mountain That God cannot move Problems, and I don't know the trials that you face, and I don't know God's will, but I can tell you I know His grace. So just keep on climbing. And by faith, understand If he's not moved your mountain You better believe that he can I've not seen a mountain That God cannot move Souls he fed. Oh. 
blessing. Amen. I appreciate the ovation. I don't often get one when I come to the pulpit. Anyway, God's good. And uh, through, through it all, we learn to trust in him. Amen. Virus has been tough. We've, we've lost folks uh, for various reasons and Jack's family, keep them in prayer. Aileen can't come. She's quarantining. Uh, and, And we just have a lot of folks that have struggled and we've seen our church go through it. And uh, yet we're still encouraged and excited to be here on the Lord's Day. And I'm excited to get this thing behind us and move forward uh, full steam ahead. But uh, we, we, we're just so thankful to have our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I've entitled this Seven Ducks in Dirty Water. Seven Ducks in Dirty Water. And you'll know why in a few moments. Seven Ducks in Dirty Water. 2 Kings chapter 5. And this church has a tradition to stand. So when you find that, chapter 5, verse 1, you stand with me. We're going to study 15 verses, but we're only going to read one verse this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Kings 5, 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. He was a mighty man, but he was a leper. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in this world. That we will glean handfuls that you've given us on purpose. And that we'll take the the Word of God, the seed of the Word of God, and we'll just uh, let it produce fruit in our lives. That we can grow and become fruit-bearing people. And God we, we know that you're the vine and we're your branches and we can bear fruit if we just abide in you. Help us to do that this morning. Bless now. And Lord, I need you this moment, this hour, to be empowered from on high to preach and to say exactly what I need to say. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. First and second Kings are one volume in the original language. One volume in the original language. Kings covers a period from the death of David throughout Judah's history until their captivity in 586. We know that uh, Jewish writings tell us Jeremiah was the author. Uh, Others say, no, it was written at a later time. But the Bible doesn't say. So we don't dispute over that when the Bible's silent. We have ideas and opinions, but the Bible does not say who wrote it. But we know that whoever wrote the book was dependent on the prophets of that era. And during that 200-year time period, you have nine of the minor prophets prophesying. Nine of the twelve of the minor prophets in your Bible. And then four major prophets. 
You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel also prophesied. And then you have the non-writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha prophesying. They didn't write, but their prophecies, we find some in the Bible, and their work in the Bible. They were also part of the history, and possibly all those people contributed to the ideas of whoever wrote this book. We know there's a lot of parallels between the Old and New Testament, between this book and New Testament books as well. Jesus healed ten lepers near Samaria, Elisha heals Naaman of Samaria. Jesus said to the priest to go, uh, or said to the said to the uh, those healed, go to the priest. Naaman says to those, uh, to, 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 Naaman's told to go uh, and uh, jump in the Jordan River and dip seven times. We know one Samaritan thanked Jesus, and this Samaritan, excuse me, Syrian thanked Elisha. Jesus said uh, to the Samaritan, "Go on your way." Elisha said, "Here, go in peace." A lot of parallels. They washed in the Jordan in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they washed in the pool of Siloam for healing. So God uses different bodies of water. A lot of comparisons, a lot of things like that. But at least ten people, a cast of ten characters, are prevalent in this book. We're going to look at them this morning. Naaman, verse 1, a mighty man. He was Ben-Hadad's military commander. He was a wealthy guy. He was honorable, mighty, God had used him to spare Syria from several enemy armies. Uh, there were other mighty men of valor in the Bible. You know, David was called a mighty man of valor. He was a fighting man. We know that Jeroboam, an evil king, was considered a great man of valor. We know Gideon and Jephthah. And then we know Boaz is called a mighty man of wealth. And here it says Naaman was a mighty man in verse 1. But there's a little word there I want you to notice. The word but. He was a mighty man, but... He was a leper. Now, if you were to look at uh, Leviticus 13 later, not now, but when you go home, you can study Leviticus 13, you'll find that leprosy is a type of sin. All scholars tell us leprosy is a type of sin. And in Leviticus chapter 13, you'll find seven things that are apparent with leprosy and parallels to sin. First of all, leprosy appears harmless. It's just a little white spot when it first starts. People don't think much of it. I had a chance to visit a leper colony in Panama, and I went up to the gates, and I looked in there, and they were behind the times medically. We're going back now 35 years. But I remember seeing some of the lepers, and they were wrapped up, and they looked terrible, and I thought if they could get them to America where we've dealt with leprosy and could help them. But they were struggling with leprosy. But none of them knew when they had a little white spot that that would be harmless, and that's the way sin is as well. It appears harmless. Second of all, leprosy is more than skin deep. While there's a little speck on the surface, it actually comes from inside. Sin's the same way. When you know someone's got a sin problem, there's problems in the heart. Someone has a temper, and they blow up about little things. It's not really the little thing that matters. It's something bigger in the heart. So we know that sin, like leprosy, is more than skin deep. Third, from Leviticus 13, it spreads. You know, when, when you have a sin problem, it'll affect your children. It'll affect people who, who uh, look up to you. Fourth, it's contagious. <clears throat> you know, the Bible tells you when you have a sin problem, you are affecting other people. And sometimes you can cause them to stumble because maybe they've struggled with that particular sin and then they see you, you know, doing something and all of a sudden they're going back and doing the same thing they used to do because you've tripped them up. That's what the word offend means. It's the word scandalon or scandalize. 
And so we know that, that sin and leprosy both are contagious, and they both ruin the whole. <clears throat> leprosy will cause you to lose a limb. starts with a finger and then an arm. And that's the way sin is. It ruins the whole. You remember when Achan hid the treasure, the whole army suffered. Fifth or sixth, excuse me, it kills. The wages of sin is... What does leprosy do to people? Before we had modern day medicine and treatment, it killed everyone. I mean, people just died. Finally, if you read Leviticus 13, you'll find it's dealt with by fire. What happens to people who have sin that's never been paid for? They go to hell and burn forever and ever in the lake of flames, the lake of fire. So we see these parallels and we think of leprosy and we think of sin and we think of so many people. Here it says, Naaman was a mighty man, but was a leper. I look at society and I think of all the people who had characteristics like Naaman. I, I, he was no doubt a wealthy, famous, great warrior. So many things about him uh, we, we read in the text and we find people that are just like him, but that are sin sick. I think of people like George Soros, a, a very, very wealthy man, but he's a sinner. I think of famous people, so many famous people. I think of the Dalai Lama. Everybody's heard of the Dalai Lama. And we think, well, how famous is that guy? And yet, he's sin sick. And the wages of sin is death. And that's eternal death, not just physical. If you're not saved, your death is more than physical. It's eternal separation from God. I think of all the smart people, all the Harvard grads that have these great IQs. And yet, they're sin sick and end up in hell. I think of people with good looks. I remember when I was a young guy, I thought Elizabeth Taylor was really a knockout, you know. And uh, I thought she's beautiful when she's a young actress, 30 years old, and I was about 10 or 12 or something. I thought, wow, is that lady pretty. And yet, what is, how has that helped her for eternity? It, ha it hasn't helped her. You see, she's beautiful. And I think of great athletes. I, I think Tom Brady's probably the greatest quarterback of all time. And he, the last time Michigan won a championship was when he was there, you know? And so I kind of root for him, but the man's without the Lord. You know, all these people, uh, none of them profess to know the Lord. Naaman was a mighty man, but he was a leper. And there are a lot of people in this world that have a lot of things the world has to offer, but they're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And so we know that if you don't repent of your sins, all those things that you have going for you don't matter. God's not impressed. God's not impressed with the wealthy of this world. God's not impressed with the intelligent people of the world, especially when they don't have enough sense to come out of the rain. It's amazing to me how people with the highest IQs are so dumb to buy into the, the world's idea of how we got here. You know, it's like that little boy, he's, he went to his dad and said, Daddy, how, how did we come into being? And he said, well, God created Adam and Eve. He said, well, Mom said we came from monkeys. He said, that's from her side of the family. <clears throat> You know, to think those thoughts, you know, you're missing the obvious. The Bible said creation speaks volumes about God. It says there's a creator. And so here we have all kinds of people in our world, and yet, just like Naaman, they're lepers when it comes to sin. And second of all, we have a little maid in verses 2 through 4. I love this little lady. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away a captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she says to her mistress, verse 3, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet? Uh, she called him her master. 
that, that is Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And, and, and one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus saith the maid that uh, is of the land of Israel. So here, here you have a lot of heroes in this text. Of course, God's the ultimate hero because he's the great physician, and we know that, that he's in control, and this is all God appointed. And Elisha's great. I love the fact that he speaks the word of God. Did you know prophets actually spoke the actual words of God? I'm preaching from the word of God, but I'm not inspired. The last person to be inspired was John on the island of Patmos. I'm preaching God's word, but I'm not God-breathed. But these prophets actually spoke exactly what God said. So Elisha's a great man in the text. But the unsung hero of the text is this little Jewish lady who's a slave and waits on, on the master's wife. And no doubt they respected her because when she spoke, they went and told Naaman, hey, the little Jewish lady, you know, the little maid we have, she says, she says, uh, you know, go see this prophet of Israel. He can help you. He can heal you from leprosy. And she's the hero. Do you know what? Today, we have people who are sin sick and we can be difference makers. Even if we're little slaves or servants, even if we're the least in this world, some of the greatest witnesses are people who don't have a lot going for them, but they speak up and say, Jesus can help you. Why, why don't you go to come to my church or why don't you go to church somewhere? The Lord can help you with your problems. That's the unsung hero, this little Jewish lady. I imagine she's probably about five feet tall, if that. They say David was maybe five, six. We don't know that, but they guess about the size of the people, the Jewish people at that time. I, I, and yet she speaks up. She, she could have been thrown out to the, you know, in the wilderness. She could have been abandoned or killed for speaking up. But she said, oh, if he would go and see the prophet of Israel. I like that. She's the least in his life. In this life. Naaman, whose name meant gracious, was probably good to her. And because she had the confidence to speak up, so he was probably a good man in some sense, but but he was a leper, and he was also sin sick. And so we have this mighty man, this little mate. Then we have a pagan king in verses 5 and 6. And of course, Naaman's king just loved him because he was a hero. He had won all these great victories. So he writes a letter to the king of Israel, Joram, and sends this letter with 150 pieces of silver. I mean gold, excuse me, not silver, gold. Sends this gold and says, can, can you get him healed? Can you help him? And, and Joram, the, the son of Ahab, we know he's not much. He's just a puppet king. He's, he's nothing. He has no influence. He has no testimony. He's not influential or godly. He, he gets this letter about, with his goal, and he says, who am I? I? I can't help him. He's immediately intimidated and overwhelmed because he can't do anything. And we know that uh, the pagan king Hadad, named after the storm god of the Syrians. You ever wonder where all these gods are? Changing the subject, it just hits me. Yeah, all these gods they worship back then, Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch and all Zeus and all them. Nobody worships them anymore. If they were really gods, they'd still exist today. In a few years, Allah, nobody's going to worship him in 500 years if we're still here as a people. Why? Because he's just a false god. A lot of false gods, a lot of demons. Only one true god. And so he worshiped the storm god, Hadad. And he's, 
He he's now wants to buy healing for his prophet. 150 pieces of gold. You can't buy healing from physical disease. You can find the greatest physicians, but you know what? God still appoints a time for your death. No matter how much money you have or how many doctors you have, God's already set aside a time. And you're going to go no matter how much money you have. It's the same thing with sin. You can't buy salvation. You can give all you want to the church. That's not going to save you. You have to repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ in salvation. And so here he tries to send this money and, and Joram, who's a worthless king, says, I don't know what to do with this. But then in verses 8 and 9, drop down here, we'll read these. We find here a man of God. I like this. It's a fascinating passage here. And it was said that when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing, why, what's going on here? Why don't you just send him my way? Send him to me. I like what Jesus said. Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Elisha says, tell him to come to me. Tell him to come to me. He knew that God was a God of gods and that God could heal him. And God, no doubt, told Elisha, get word to him, have him come to you, and we'll see the glory of God here. And so he says, send him to me. You know, God wants willing hearts. Whosoever will can be saved. Isn't that something? People think that, you know, there, there's not a choice in life, that, that they just go through life and they don't have choices. Some people say, oh, I'd like to know God, or I'd, li I'd like to know about God. And, and you know what? They, they just don't because they don't realize that God says, come unto me. Come, come, come. And the world wants God to do some great thing. They won't believe unless God writes it in the sky. And the same thing happens with Naaman. Look at verse 8. The last part of verse 8 says, Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now this isn't arrogance. A prophet was just a spokesman. Like a megaphone, so to speak. God told them, say this. They said it. And oftentimes they were saying things that would be fulfilled in their own lifetime. Jeremiah prophesied about the destruction of Israel, and in his lifetime he lived to see it happen. They laughed at him. All the prophets are laughed at because they don't know what they're talking about, yet it's always fulfilled. But he says in verses 10 to 12, we, we find, verses 10 to 12, excuse me, we find these, this unnamed messenger. It says, and Elisha, and Elisha's name means God is my Savior, he sent a message unto him saying, so Naaman, verse 9, excuse me, Naaman pulls up in his chariot. He parks in front of Elisha's house. Just get the picture. Here he is. He's got his entourage there. They're, they're probably keeping a distance from him, uh, but he's probably got some warriors. We don't know what the scene is, but we know he's in his chariot. And he parks in front of Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even go out there. Verse, verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times in thy flesh, and come again to thee, and thou, thy flesh shall come to thee, and thou shalt be clean. He said, go, go dip in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be cleansed of this leprosy. That sounds like kind of a crazy thing to do. Yeah, it, it, Go take, take seven ducks in dirty water, you know. Go, go, and the word wash is translated several ways. It can mean bathe or rinse. And we know in Jeremiah that Jordan speaks of death. It was kind of a murky 
place, the Jordan River. I baptized someone there when I went to Israel. But it's, it's a clean river, but it's murky, kind of dirty looking. And, and, uh, and so he says, go, go dip seven times. Look back at chapter 4, verse 35. Here we have this great story of Elisha raising the woman's son. The Bible says he stretched himself upon the child in verse 35, middle of the verse, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his, opened his eyes. The child sneezes seven times, his eyes open, he's, he's raised from the dead. Seven in Scripture is the number of completion. You'll find it often. We think of Jericho. March around it how many times? And then on the seventh day, how many days were there in creation? How many churches in Revelation? How many lights on the candlestick? The three judgments of bowls, seven judgments, trumpets, and, and, and veil judgments, seven, seven, all through Scripture find the number seven. So he says, go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And look what it says in verse 11. But Naaman was wroth. I mean, he's really, really incensed. He's angry. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends a servant. Go jump in the Jordan River seven times, you'll be healed. Well, you know, he's just so mad. The same Hebrew word is used over in, in where Pharaoh was angry with the butcher and the baker. And he threw them in prison because of their incompetence. That same word is used here. I mean, here's Naaman, a mighty man, and he's really angry. He's wroth. But you see, he had to be humble enough to go into the water. And he says here, I, I thought he'd strike his hand. This word's translated so many ways in your Bible. Remember when Moses raised his hand and the Red Sea parted? He would raise his rod and, and we'd know the flies or whatever would come. And he, he, they used their hands and did a lot of things to perform miracles. He wanted something like that. He wanted something supernatural. You know, there's a lot of Christians that are waiting for some big event. Oh, maybe God will put a message in the clouds. Or maybe I'll have some angel come to my house and land and put his wings down and talk to me. And I want something supernatural. And yet it's just simple obedience to the word. Jesus says in Matthew, or excuse me, in John chapter 15 and verse 3, uh, Jesus said that ye are clean through the word. He need to obey what Elisha said. Then he says in verse 12, you know, the rivers in, in Syria, the far, far in Abana River, he said, they're, they're cleaner. And that word is translated clear in Exodus 24. He said, they're clear. And they're my own rivers. And i got to go down to the Jordan by those Jews. And that's not how he said it, but that's what he's thinking. And i got to go and dip in this dirty water seven times. It doesn't make any sense. So he's not crazy about the idea. Plus, the custom in the East was for the higher-ranking man to just sit still and the lower-ranking man to come to him. So he thinks this lower-ranking Elisha should come to him and do whatever he asks, and, and Elisha doesn't do it. But who's really the higher-ranking man? Elisha, the man of God. He's closer to God. And so this doesn't happen. And he's, he's in a, The Bible said he went away in a rage. Another word that means hot with indignation, just furious. It's his pride. That's what it is. It's his pride. That's talking this morning. We, we know people who need to learn to say they're sorry. You ever meet somebody who never, who ne who's never wrong? 
Some of you say, oh, they're sitting next to me right now, actually, Pastor. No, but in life, you know, there are people who just never say they're sorry. That's pride. When you have to have people apologize to you, you're proud. And if you won't say you're sorry, you're proud. I mean, pride is a terrible thing. I was reading in 1989 or 1986, two ships in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia collided. They studied as they tried to find out why they collided. People, lots, thousands of people died jumping into the frozen water, being thrown into the frozen water. And, and so they investigated and they said it, it was not a problem with the radar. It was not a problem with anything in the ship malfunctioning or misdirection. It was not a problem that there was a lot of fog. You know what the problem was? Two prideful captains both refusing to steer their ship in another direction until it's too late. And it was too late and many died. That's the way a lot of people are in life. They're eaten up with pride. You know, maybe today you're, the Holy Spirit's convicting you and you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I... I don't know. I have to think this over. I don't agree with the preacher this morning. I don't have that problem or this problem. And I don't know what God, how God's speaking to you, but he, he does that Holy Spirit and that still small voice. You know, we want to hear the Holy Spirit bellow it out, man, bellow. And that's not how he speaks, is it? He just says to you, just quietly puts a little thought in your mind. You know, the preacher's preaching to you right now. You know, that little thing you have a problem with. Don't you think you ought to ask God for forgiveness? Don't you think you ought to call someone up and tell them you love them or tell them you're sorry? And I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know pride keeps us from so many blessings. So many blessings. I know there's been times over the years I've sat and listened to a preacher and I thought, this guy can't preach at all. This is awful. I've had students where I, and we would do certain things to get the students' attention. We had a policy in her homiletics class if you're monotone, I'll let them know. I'll just start going. And they, what's the professor doing that for? Oh, that's right. That's the sign that I'm monotone. I got to get excited or raise my voice or whatever, you know. We had other things we did. You know, sometimes we'd close our Bible. If they're not preaching Bible and they're preaching all their own ideas, we just close our Bible. And all the students would see me do it, and they'd all close their Bible, and they got to get the point. i got to get back to the Scriptures. So we did different things. And I think a lot of times we're, we're always, we're always expecting something that, that's not going to happen. God wants us to be humble people who just listen and learn. And I, I lost my train of thought, but you must remember where I was, but, but we'll move forward. But you know, here, here we have another humble servant. I, I like in verse 13. Here's a servant that, that several servants say, you know, why doesn't Naaman just go dip in the Jordan River seven times, just do what he's told? He's all angry, and his servants again, some more unsung heroes say, just go do what the prophet said. You know, if he asked you to do some great thing, you do it. He's just saying, go dip in this water seven times. How hard can that be? Again, the servants. We don't know their names, but these servants. I... I like, I like love verse 14. He goes down there and he dips seven times. And Job, that's translated plunged. In the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the word baptor, word baptism, to immerse. So he goes and he goes under the water seven times. 
His servant suggested it. He's doing it. And the Bible says in verse 14, he was clean. That word's translated purified in Nehemiah. He was pure. He was clean. Look at verse 14. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. Why? Because verse 13, his servants came near and spake unto him with respect. Father, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, you'd have done it. But, but he's just simply saying to do it. And he goes and he dips seven times in the Jordan River. And the Bible says his flesh came again like unto a flesh of a child and he was clean. Obedience. Simple obedience. In return to the man of God, he and all his company and came and behold, stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in Israel and all the earth no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now I know. I like First John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. You know why you doubt your salvation sometimes? Because you're not reading your Bible. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word. People don't read their Bible, they're doubting their salvation. I was saved at 12 years old in my bedroom. And I know I was saved because the Lord took up residence. A lot of people think, well, I'll take you to the place and tell you about the time. That's a great little chorus. But the fact is, as we said before, it's not about a time and a place. It's about the Lord saving you and taking up residence in your life. You know why I'm saved? You know why I knew I was saved after that? And while I've known I'm saved all these years, I feel the Lord's presence in here. <laughs> you know, I have the internal evidence. I know I'm saved not because I can remember a prayer I prayed, but I, I, I know that the Lord's in here. He's taken up residence. And that's a wonderful experience. But but I doubted my salvation. I remember that summer, I'd pray a prayer again. Lord, save me from my sins. And a few years later, again, save me from my sins. Save me, save me. And finally, it dawned on me. If I wanted to be closer to God and feel His presence, I need to be in His Word. And I started to read His Bible. I remember my pastor, when I went to him and, and you know told him I was going to be a pastor, and I, I love to listen to him. And you can hear him sometime on Moody Classics and stuff. His name's Sugden, S-U-G-D-E-N. And I, I went to him and I said, Pastor, what, why, um, are you so, why are you so good at what you do? I mean, I, I feel God's calling me and, and I want to know what the difference is. He said, Dan, he said, son, if you can study 20 to 30 hours a week, you'll be feeding your sheep and you'll be a successful pastor and I thought, 20 to 30 hours? I never studied in college or seminary or anything like that. I didn't know what that meant, you know. And uh, I hadn't finished seminary yet. But I remember that I went to Panama to start my the first church, and God helped me start a church to the military, and I was 27 years old. And I thought, okay, now i got to study 20 hours a week. First time I sat down, I studied. Two hours later, I <clears throat> found asleep. I said, how did he do that? And I'd get up and I'd walk around. And I'd sit down, study a couple more hours, study a couple more hours. And before long, I was in shape to study 20 or 30 hours a week. Folks, when you get in the Word, you won't doubt your salvation. You won't doubt God. You won't doubt the Word of God. When your faith is not increasing, it's because you're not learning and growing and studying Scripture. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Read through John's Gospel. When you get done, read it again. It's amazing. John's Gospel for the new believer is amazing. It's simple, to, easy to follow. And yet for a Bible professor, it, it, it's, it's still teaching me all the time when I'm 
preaching and studying through John's Gospel or any book of the Bible. This is a living book. It divides. It, it can divide your soul and your spirit. It knows the intentions of your heart. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what does it say? It knows the intentions and thoughts of your heart. When you read this, God goes, goes to work on you. Anyway, here's, here now is this, these courageous servants speak up, and he, and he says, now I know there's no other God but our God, the God of Israel. Which person are you today as we close? Are you the sin-sick person today? You're without God. You're lost. You, you like leprosy. You've got sin just all over you. Un, unwilling to obey like Naaman and proud, not willing to admit you need help. You know the Bible said confess your faults one to another? Why do I stand up here sometimes and talk about myself in a negative way? The Bible says to do that. That's why. I struggle with impatience. On the way here. On the way here. I'm waiting at a light and the guy's got two lanes covered. I'm thinking, okay, buddy, he's texting. McTexter. I had to go around him, go through the light. I'm looking in my rearview mirror. The light turns yellow and red. He's still there. Now, I wanted to lay on the horn. Patience. It's tough. So I confess that to you. I start, why do I do that? Because the Bible says to. And if you're too proud to admit you have problems, you're not going to get help. You know, people think marriage counseling is foolish. The Bible said the wise man seeks counsel. Sometimes men don't want to go for counseling for their marriage because they're so proud, they don't want anybody to know they have marriage issues and their marriage goes to hell. Listen, if you have problems, get advice, seek counsel, have a prayer partner, dive in Scripture, and God will change you. Are you like Naaman? Are you a witness like this little Hebrew slave? You say, well, I can't do much for God. Oh, yes, you can. This little bitty lady could, a mighty, mighty warrior like Naaman and changed his life. Are you the man of God like Elisha? We all want to be that. Are you a cowardice leader like Joram? pagan king. What are you? In the, in the next half of the chapter, we're not going to look at it, but we have this greedy servant that goes to Naaman behind Elijah's back and says, hey, if you, if you give me an, an offering for this, you know, I'd appreciate it. And, you know, he took advantage of the situation. Later, he became a leper. Are you like that? You try to benefit from God's work or God's worry? Hey, we need to be real people. Real people recognize they have real problems. You know, if our country doesn't realize it's got problems and get on their knees, we're not going to be healed. God says we need to call on Him. And while we, we, we all say amen to that, 2 Chronicles 7.14, we need to say amen to that individually. If you don't recognize your sin and seek help from Scripture, from prayer, from prayer partners, from godly people, you're failing, and you're going to go down, 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 down. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Bless us, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done. We pray you speak to hearts today. Have your way and will in everyone's life. Life. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.